When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Hello and welcome. This is Lockdown TV from Unheard. Joining us today is John McWhorter, a great thinker and writer from the US. One of the oddest things is to see, you know, mathematicians, philosophers, you know, a philosopher who's made their way through Plato and Kant and Kierkegaard. And then all of a sudden, when they're reasoning about Black Lives Matter, suddenly they, you know, exhibit the reasoning power of roughly an orangutan. A professor of linguistics and American studies and much else at Columbia, and he's joining us from New York. Hello. So there's so much we want to talk about today. Obviously, we've recently had the result of the Derek Chauvin trial on the killing of George Floyd. What's your reflection on that? Do you, do you feel that justice has been done in that case? Yeah, justice has definitely been done. I think it's absolutely egregious what happened to George Floyd and how blasé Officer Derek Chauvin was about it. And I think it's a wonderful precedent to see the man actually you know, punished for what he's doing, including not being able to go home and have sex and watch Marvel movies and wait to appeal, but to actually go into solitary confinement. This is good. Now, the truth is that I guess... Part of the reason I'm called heterodox or contrarian is that I don't see it as a racial matter the way many people do. And that's not to say that there are not racial matters. But on this one, it isn't that George Floyd, in my mind, died because he was black. There are people, similar things have happened to who are white. There's a cop problem. There's a problem with cops and violence, cops and killing and cops getting away with it. And the American media focus only on the black cases and make it look to any reasonable person like this is something that largely only happens to black people and the cops therefore kill out of some kind of racism. We just don't hear about the white cases. And some people say, well, the thing is black people are killed in disproportion to our representation in the population. It's about two and a half times more than you would expect. But the thing is, for reasons that are equally unjustifiable, 
Black people are two and a half times more likely to be poor. Poor people end up having run-ins with the cops more for reasons that I don't even need to explain. And so there is a sense in America that what this verdict was about was black people being killed by the cops. I see it as a victory about people being killed by the cops. And if it has to be a black case that galvanizes change in that under a certain misconception, well, life isn't perfect, but I am very happy about what happened to that man. And I am very sad about what happened to George Floyd, but I'm equally sad about what happened to Tony Timpa, which was very similar. And Tony Timpa was very white and it was only four years ago and no one heard about it. So that's my view about these sorts of things. Are you anxious at all about the atmosphere that has surrounded the, since the commentary since the verdict? I mean, we had LeBron James coming out with a tweet um, saying, you're next, with a picture of the cop uh, who uh, killed a, a, another a, a woman recently. Um, the circumstances aren't all clear. The trial hasn't happened yet, but it was quite chilling, and he's actually taken that tweet down. Do you think people have... have somehow lost perspective on it? Or, or what's, your, what's your sense of the atmosphere? The atmosphere is that justice was done, but the atmosphere is also that one is not supposed to get too cozy and that we have to consider that this may have been a unique case where there was such a clear and obvious recording of what happened. Many people are telling us that we need to expect that it's gonna be the same old, same old in the future. And in general, what we're gonna see is the media continuing to report only on cases of black people being killed. And so I hate to say this, but with the latest case, and this is so recent that I haven't done a study of it yet because <laughs> I was asleep. The truth is my immediate thought at this point is, that's terrible what happened to her. I wonder what the white cases like that were that we're not gonna hear about. And I don't even need to look them up, they will exist. But we're only gonna hear about the black case. And I don't think that's gonna change. You just have to accept that life isn't perfect. And do you think that means that the trial system, the justice system is less reliable? I mean, do you think, for example, that Mr. Chauvin received a fair trial, even if he was guilty or had he not been guilty? Do you feel that a fair, jury trial is possible in this kind of atmosphere? I think that in this kind of atmosphere, it forces what we would call a fair jury trial in the ethical and moral sense. I imagine there are legal details about exactly what constitutes murder and manslaughter and police practice where one might argue. But to me, as a thinking human being watching what happened to George Floyd, the idea that Chauvin would go off free could only be on what a moral person would think of as a technicality. It would seem that the idea that that only happens to black people forced finally a fair kind of trial about this sort of thing. And that will probably continue. If fairness requires a certain fear of the streets erupting, that's not the way I would choreograph it, but maybe sometimes you have to break some eggs to make an omelet. The cop problem is real, partly for a human reason, and partly because the sense, even though I think it's a misperception that the cops are uniquely against black people, is the main obstacle to getting past race in the United States. That is the main sticking point. If one generation of black people grew up without a sense of the cops as an enemy, we would be in a completely new world, despite the fact that racism other kinds of other kinds will exist. The cops is it. So if it changes, even if it isn't changing the way I would do it if I could write the play, I am happy to see the change. Some of the remarks, we had Nancy Pelosi describing, she didn't actually use the word martyr, but she said that George Floyd, you've given your life for um, the, uh, justice, essentially. 
you were one of the first people to talk about the anti-racism movement having religious connotations. So way back in 2014, you wrote a piece um, just detailing that. That's now almost commonly accepted, isn't it? That, that in some way, elements of the anti-racism movement fills the gap left by religion. Oh, yeah. I think that many people, if given this analysis, would take a deep breath and say, yes, this is a religion and I own that. And it's a good one. And so Nancy Pelosi using the martyr language. I saw a clip on YouTube the other day of a very well-intentioned teacher who was trying to explain the whole notion of being complicit in systemic racism as a white person, even if you haven't done anything. And she openly said, how many of you are Catholic? And how many of you think about original sin? It's like that. I seriously doubt if she's read any of my pieces. She was just you know, reasoning herself independently. Yeah, that is how people feel. What I think people miss is that when it becomes a religious movement, there's a part of religion that is ill-suited to changing things, and that is that you have to suspend your disbelief to an extent. You have to be blind to facts. And so with this religion, the idea that the cops aren't killing out of racist animus isn't acceptable because the religion is based on this idea that you must testify to your anti-racism, that that's more important than anything else. And the reason that that's bad is because in other cases, it hurts black people. And so if you're going to have a religion where you say that systemic racism is such that we're going to say that being precise and being on time and close reasoning are white things, and it's racist to impose them on black people. And that is being openly said in the world of education today. If you say that, of course, you're setting up black kids to do badly in school and to not be eligible for good jobs as they get older. And just to put that into the water, that for black people, being exact is alien. No, you're, you're handicapping black people in any society other than, you know, 30 people living on the land, hunting and gathering. Once you're beyond that, you're going to need a certain amount of precision. And even hunter-gatherers are precise. And so a lot of the anti-racist religion is harmful to black people. And because of the religious aspect, you have to turn a blind eye to these harmful things in order to be able to do your testifying. So it's extremely dangerous. And I've been trying to get that message out since last summer when things have taken this particular turn. Do you think the religious fervor is particularly true in the white part of the population? Yes, I think specifically that this is something I hate to say. There has been a religious aspect to how people think about race among black people since about the 1960s. The tendency among some black people to insist that things never really get better to insist that racism is lurking under every rock and behind every tree. That's been a type overrepresented in academia, in the media. And so it looks like it's all black people, but really it's mostly educated black people who think that way. That's old. That's ever since the civil rights victories forced a new kind of lens for reasons that we don't have time to go into. What's happened now is that a representative number of whites have picked up the same way of thinking. And so, yes, there's an extent to which the whites are often more religious than the black people on it. Woker, than black people. So defund the police. Great many black people living in dangerous neighborhoods don't get that at all. But there's a certain kind of woke white person who has, says, well, well, yeah, it's complicated because they can't accept that what they think of as anti-racism might actually not be good for the people in question. That's because they're more religious, partly because it's newer to them. And is it also disproportionately among elite and highly educated white people, do you think? This kind of view tilts educated, yeah. Not not completely, but a lot of it is a matter of being exposed to certain texts and certain positions. And, you know, also to um, 
it helps to be a kind of a cosseted person to think in these ways. If you're somebody who's more familiar with struggle, if you're somebody who's familiar with what it's like when your kid is in a bad school, when you're familiar with what it's like to live in a bad neighborhood, in a way, this sort of thinking is going to be less congenial. And many people would say, well, it's because you're a racist. No, it's, it's not that. It's that there is a certain luxury in thinking of black people as such abstractions in this way. It's something that happens when you don't have enough to do. And I am a person who is that sort, you know, when you're at the top of society and you have a certain amount of leisure time. So yeah, this way of thinking tilts educated and that's the way it'll probably always be, but that's a problem because the educated think that they're being educated means that they're correct. They think of it as enlightenment. And in many ways it's not. So what's interesting here, though, is in those minds of those um, elite, educated white people you're talking about, they're also the people who are most trained in the scientific way of thinking. They, you know, they will have degrees in statistics and public policy and all of these uh, disciplines where cold, rational assessment of the facts is the paramount virtue. And yet they're almost being retrained in some way to, to think differently. Do you think that this is actually leading to some kind of epistemological shift in the way our young people are thinking? I don't think it's an epistemological shift. I think that we have a religion. And it's as simple as that. It's a replacement for traditional kinds of Christianity. And what it means is that you sequester a part of your mind away from what you think of as cold logic. That's part of almost any religion. And now the idea is that you do that not only about faith and Jesus, but about black people and what they need. It's a religion. It's any Martian anthropologist would recognize it as such. And so yet yeah, one of the oddest things is to see, you know, mathematicians, philosophers, you know, a philosopher who's made their way through Plato and Kant and Kierkegaard. And then all of a sudden when they're reasoning about Black Lives Matter, suddenly they you know, exhibit the reasoning power of roughly an orangutan. Suddenly that's considered sophisticated. It's just religious. You sequester your brain power away from certain things that you consider to be important in a more supernatural way. It's just odd to see a religion actually in formation and being about something that is so vivid to us as race relations. But religions can form about all sorts of things, as we see with Scientology. And one of the things they can form is language. I mean, the actual words we use to communicate. You have a forthcoming book, Transition. Uh, Nine Nasty Words. Um, and looking at that, what's so interesting is a number of those most nasty, most unsayable words are race related, the ones you detail in that book. Um, and it almost feels like in previous decades, even recent decades, you could pretty much say any rude word. And now, the concept of real heresy, the concept of totally unsayable language has returned. Do you see that as a, as a linguist? Yeah, and I often say that the linguist me and the cultural commentator me are different people, but there is a link here. And I want people watching this to know that Nine Nasty Words is overall a very jolly little book. It's not the the, it's not written in the gloomy vein that you've just seen me talking about George Floyd with. It's written by the other me. But still, there is a certain intersection. There's a there's a Venn diagram overlap in that nowadays in English, as it is actually spoke, it isn't the four letter words that are profanity. What is profanity in terms of what we don't want our kids to say or even hear? What is profanity in getting you kicked out of places and spaces is slurs. 
And the reason for that is that we have a deep commitment to not slurring subgroups of people. I'm not dismissing all of that as religious. Something in particular has happened in the United States and beyond, I hear where you are too, since last summer. But I wrote nine nasty words before that. And the fact of the matter nevertheless is that fuck is one thing. And we're told that that's a bad word. But notice that I just said it, and you can imagine how much I say it every day, in contrast to a version of me 50 years ago who wouldn't have. As opposed to the words I'm not going to say, such as the N-word and a word beginning with C that is you know, hurled at women, a word beginning with F that refers to gay men, those are our profanity, and it's because of our not wanting to slur other people in a way that was considered perfectly ordinary even just a few decades ago and certainly 50 years ago and before. So what's considered profanity channels what a society is concerned with. There was a recent case, uh, the science editor of the New York Times, uh, Donald McNeil Jr., I think he was called, um, who was sacked for repeating the N-word uh, with a class. I think there was an expedition to Peru and he repeated the word in telling a story whilst not intending to cause offence. And then the New York Times put out a statement saying that intention is not relevant. If you use that word, you're out. Uh, as a linguist, is that quite an interesting new step that intent, intent and the word used have been kind of separated and the word seems to have its own power? Well, yeah, I mean, here we go beyond linguistics into anthropology, in which I'm not really trained, but it's become a taboo word. It's become the same thing as a group of people we don't know much about, where it turns out you're not allowed to say a certain word. And they give reasons why something that happened in the past or a, a dead spirit or something like that. You do not say makusha. Never say makusha. Don't say anything that sounds like makusha. That's a very ordinary thing in human societies. Now we have one. And it's interesting. I end up sounding like a sort of fist-shaking, get-off-my-lawn old guy by saying this, but I'm not that old. I'm 55, but that's just old enough to know that the way we handle the N-word in the United States now is weird because in a world that felt just as modern, say the 1990s, back when I was in my 30s, Donald McNeil would not have been fired for that. In ordinary conversation, a white person could use that word in reference with taste, you know, not over and over, but you could refer to it, you could say it. All of a sudden, starting about 20 years ago, you simply couldn't, and the stakes have gotten even higher about that word since last summer. And that means that we're dealing not with just a discomfort with the word or an acknowledgement of how it's been used in the past. Now, there's a taboo upon uttering that sequence of sounds in any way, or we've gotten to the point where you're not allowed to even write it with euphemism. And that's, to me, you know, a linguist is not supposed to comment. I commentate and then I linguist. But I frankly find this to be unnecessary. I have to toe the line. But I think what's happened over the past 20 years, with the N-word in particular, isn't necessary. And I feel that it casts black people as hothouse flowers to a degree that I find condescending. And that's not to say that people are supposed to run around using the word. But... I think America had it about right as recently as about 1995. And since then, we've started to treat it in a way that I'm not sure is very productive. But that's just me. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Meanwhile, as some of these words have become taboo and religiously unsayable, there's a whole host of new words, uh, new concepts that are gaining some kind of semi-religious aura. And I want to throw a couple of them out and see what you think of them. Um, one of them is whiteness. Uh, this is used a lot, and it's really not entirely clear to me what it means. Could you tell us what it means? <laughs> whiteness. Well, whiteness is... Um... It's interesting. I remember when that was a word that was only used by people who dressed in black and smoked cigarettes in the courtyard at universities. And that was about the only place you would hear about whiteness studies. Now we all know what whiteness is. And the idea is that to be not white is to live under this hegemony of people who, one, don't understand the power that they have, don't understand what it's like to be the default category. Then there's also a sense that whiteness is blander and more uptight than the reality of people who aren't white. So you get the idea that it's white to be exact, it's white to do higher math, it's white to reason closely, it's white to be on time. And in general, whiteness is conceived of in this way as a kind of a standing indictment of any white person as unwittingly complicit in abuse and oppression and bias in a society in which inequality is entrenched. That is the way a person uses that word. And the question is, how do you overturn whiteness? So especially since last summer, the idea is to decenter whiteness. But I think the big question is, decenter whiteness in favor of what? And I think America is working out whatever that's gonna mean. It's when it starts to mean bad, evil, 
that it gets a little bit concerning. This, this is quite a famous phrase from a piece that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote about Donald Trump, where he said, uh, Where, whereas his forebears carried whiteness like an ancestral talisman, Trump cracked the glowing amulet open, releasing its eldritch energies. Um, what do you make of that kind of language, where, where whiteness is almost this talismanic evil that is now upon us? There is a certain kind of person who builds their sense of significance in society on a victim role. A person can do that of any color. It's a personality type. With Black Americans, one way that you do that is to focus on your victimhood or your people's victimhood at the hands of whites. And it's not that there isn't racism. But the idea that what makes you special, what makes you important, is your victimhood status in comparison to whites, that can become who you are. It can become your comfort zone. It can become your comfort food. That's the main thing that you think of yourself as, as something in opposition to this whiteness. Coates is a good writer, but Coates is that kind of person. And that's where that kind of imagery comes from. You know, Donald Trump didn't seem to me to have anything to do with amulets or anything shining out of anything, even metaphorically. But I see what Coates means if you think of blackness as consisting primarily of suffering at the hands of whites. That's where that kind of language comes from. That's his perspective. It is not mine, and it is not the perspective of a great many black people we don't hear from, but that's where he's coming from. So do you feel like the, the talk like this and these concepts like whiteness and blackness that get talked about so much, would it be more helpful if we just set it all aside and stopped talking like that? Is that even an achievable goal at this point? I mean, would that world be better for racial harmony if people were less interested in it, frankly? That's too advanced for me. <laughs> I don't expect to live to see it. Of course, that would be better, but I think that there are actual problems. Frankly, some of the problems these days are that so many black people are taught to think of ourselves as victims, and now that so many white people are taught to pretend to think that that's all we are. In order to get past that, we have to keep talking about race. But also, there are real issues. There are inequities where black people are overly represented as opposed to white people. There are problems that black America has and they need to be faced. The issue though is just what are the solutions? And many people are telling us that the solution to black America's problems is for white people to think of us as poster children and think about their complicitness in white supremacy. I'm not sure whose life that changes, even though those people call themselves engaged in some kind of prelude to political activism they never seem to be terribly interested in it. You know, go out and knock on some doors. Don't sit reading Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. But that, that said, there are problems. Um, I have a Substack and I have a book coming. I'm not allowed to announce when that book is coming, but I've written about this, where part of that book is what the black community actually needs. And you do have to think about race on certain levels. It's just how. And for me, the how is not creating this fetishized theatrical sense of black people as these eternal victims and everybody wallowing and how charismatic all of that is. 
that doesn't it doesn't feed anybody. It doesn't get anybody a better apartment. So I just think we need to get back to politics as opposed to histrionics and kabuki, which is what a lot of all of this ends up being in terms of whose life it actually helps. So what do you think we can practically do about this? If you're a sincere person who cares about these issues and doesn't want to be an extremist on either side, but maybe feels like it's got a bit carried away, what do we do? And, and, and when we meet uh, people like I sur expect you're surrounded with in Columbia University who have gone quite far down this road and believe some of these things with an almost religious passion, how can you engage with them in such ways so as not to alienate them or make them think that you're evil, but maybe try and talk them down a bit or towards a more practical end place? No, no. And I don't mean to seem glib. You can't engage people like that. As soon as that kind of language starts, you have to disengage and either change the subject or run. There is nothing you can do to talk somebody out of a religion. I have found that. There is no conversation to be had. It's, it's, it's worthless. Some of them will say they want to have a conversation with you, but what they want is for you to learn from them. If there's anything that they have to learn from you, it's they want to learn what your mental barriers are to understanding their truth. There's nothing that they're going to actually learn other than their truth. So no, our solution is not to learn how to pull these people back from the cliff or how to get them to moderate their views. There's no point. Only the very occasional person can be talked out of their religion. The issue is to sidestep them. That is, it's really quite frightening if that is true. I mean, that's a, I don't know what percentage of the population we're dealing with now, whether it's very small single figures or whether it's growing into a sizable minority, but it's not insignificant, the number of people who think like this, and they have a lot of cultural capital collectively. I mean, to say there's nothing we can do to change anyone's minds, it's quite a frightening place to be. It is frightening. And to be honest, I'm beginning to think that academia is gone. I'm not sure what we can do about the takeover of academia by these parishioners. Academia, though, I have a hard time saying it because I'm part of it, is just one part of society. And I think that what we can do is discourage people who are sitting on the fence from going over to the wrong side. So there are certain people who are just lost. If somebody is like that now, you're not going to change their mind. But there are many people who are looking at the charisma involved in this kind of language, who are deeply committed to not being racist, and that in itself is a good thing, who are thinking, am I supposed to subscribe to this view that Robin DiAngelo and Ibram Kendi and ta Coates put forth, or should I trust my common sense? But is my common sense racist? Those people are reachable. I'm trying to reach those people, especially young ones, but they're people who are also middle-aged, who are just wondering, just sitting on the fence thinking, what is this? Those people are reachable. But those who have already gone over, I am baffled as to how you could get across to them. Because as we've said, beyond a certain point, it's not about logic. And therefore, you can't have a real exchange. And of course, then you get the anger and the disgust. There's just, there's no point. You should just change the subject. You can't fix them. But there are people who are teetering. Those are the ones that I think we can reach if the message is crafted carefully enough. And frankly, if the message comes from enough people who aren't white. I was actually just going to ask you about that. I mean, what is your advice to white people? Because, you know, it's these days, 
you get a lot of your legitimacy from who you are. You know that famous phrase, "speaking as a dot dot dot." That's supposed to legitimize your uh, presence in that debate.、Uh, obviously, there, we still have white majorities in a lot of、um, European and even the U.S. What should those people be doing if they are anxious that this has gone too far, but don't want to join a kind of reactionary counter movement that just makes the whole thing more hot-headed? The idea is to always keep our eyes on what the black community really needs and how the new anti-racism is often antithetical to that. So the idea is not just to call people crazy, to talk abstractly about how people are against free speech, etc. All those things. No, first of all, they're not crazy. Two, the free speech argument is oversimplified. Frankly, none of us are interested in completely free speech, and we shouldn't be. It's really an issue of this religion hurts people, and to really keep our eye on how it hurts people, how it holds black people back instead of pushing us forward, and to focus on real solutions to real problems. I think a white person, if they cast it in that way, can be confident that if one of these people who I call the elect say, "Well, you're just a racist." Well, then you can know that you're not, and I think that a lot of people need to have a little bit more of a backbone and understand that this person who's sitting there looking over their copy of How to Be an Anti-Racist and telling you that you're a racist, let them, and then walk on because the world will keep spinning and you will keep existing. I think some white people need to have the courage of their convictions, even about this thing called the race thing, and just say, "No, I'm not a racist. Maybe you are." And let's now talk about football. That we need more of that. And what is the anecdote or statistic that you reach for if you want to suggest that in certain scenarios this kind of thinking can actually be damaging rather than helpful to the black community? What? How do you evidence、oh, that? There are so many things. I mean, one one important one is the focus on white cops like Derek Chauvin is harmful to the black community in that. Black people are at much more risk of being killed in cold blood by another black person in their community. It's not that nobody talks about that, but it obviously is not talked about anywhere near enough. It's as if somehow it's some sort of statistical static. It makes no sense whatsoever. The naive Martian anthropologist would be mystified at how Derek Chauvin is considered more important than the guy from down the block who kills you because of some sort of drug war or something like that. That's just—it's—it's it's absurd. And therefore, defund the police. You're saying because you want to stick one to the Derek Chauvins. But what about neighborhoods where, if you defunded the police, unfortunately, more black people would kill more black people? That's damaging. And then there are all sorts of other things. There's a whole dialogue about. How it's not fair to suspend anything but a sliver of violent black boys when they're beating people up in school because it's racist. You wouldn't suspend a white kid who was doing the same thing. But the problem with that is that there is a vast imbalance that statistics make perfectly clear because of what poverty does to people. It is mostly brown kids who are extremely violent in these schools, and if you keep them in the schools, it's brown kids who are getting beat up. There's a whole industry talking about racism against black boys in the schools that doesn't seem to care that the black boys are beating up other black boys and often girls. It's not white people named Caitlin and Jacob who are getting beaten up where they're getting their just desserts because of white hegemony and supremacy. It's other black kids. Nobody wants to talk about that. And actually, in my Substack and in the book, I give a whole I have a whole chapter 
about how this anti-racism hurts black people because you're so focused on showing that you're not a racist and not focused on what's actually happening to black people. Give one more example. If a black person who's gone to just okay schools is admitted to a tippy top university, often they're in over their heads because at that university, teaching is very quick, a lot of things are assumed. If you go to a second tier but solid school, instruction is more deliberate and you're gonna make better grades and you will be in a position to go further when you leave school. This is especially true with law schools. Well, that in this country, there's an idea that racial preferences mean that a certain amount of black and brown kids, as in black and Latino kids, have to be admitted to these selective universities in order to have what's called arbitrarily a representative number. And what that means with law school in particular is that you have people who are there the brown kids cluster at the bottom of the class. They have a hard time passing the bar exam. Whereas the same kids, if they go somewhere that's prepared to teach them according to what they have experienced as teaching before, they do better and they pass the bar exam. They get jobs more easily. We're not supposed to talk about that because all we're supposed to talk about is that there have to be racial preferences to adjust for white supremacy. I could do this for an hour. It's just well, we it's a travesty. We won't make you do that, but thank you for that. Let me ask you for a final thought, John. Do you feel like over the past few years, you were early in spotting some of these ideas as they were gaining traction and the, and the changes as they were happening. Do you feel that there is the beginnings of a correction? Do you think that some sense is coming through or do you feel like we're further than ever from sensible middle ground? Too soon, I can't intelligently say. There are times when I feel like the pendulum is being pushed back to the middle. There are times when I feel like something has gone so wrong that there's not gonna be a meaningful academia in another generation, et cetera. I want to pronounce upon this in about a year. I think we need about another year to see what's gonna happen after the pandemic is really over, because part of this has been that people are pent up and bored and interacting mostly over Zoom. That's created an awful lot of the new atmosphere. What's gonna happen when people go back into rooms and aren't so bored? I can't say yet. I hope that we'll be swinging back to the middle. Not to the right, I just hope it'll go back to the way it was in about 2010. I look back on things I was writing in 2010, and although I was angry about all sorts of things then, it was better then. And then something happened. I never thought of myself as being prescient about this. But yeah, in, in 2014, I started saying, that's a religion going on. And boy, did that really come to bear fruit last summer. That's when the religion really you know, took, took flight, as in a significant number of white people adopted it too. I don't know. Maybe right we'll, maybe we'll um, put a date in the diary for a year, uh, John, and we can discuss it in a year and see where we are. Next April, let's, let's do it again. And I'll be honest, you know, if it's good, I'll say so. If it's bad, I'll, I'll say so. Great. Uh, John McWhirter, thank you so much for your time. Your book, Nine Nasty Words, is coming out imminently. And you promise that is a more lighthearted, but still insightful look uh, at- It's uh, a busy book, yes. Thanks to you. And uh, thanks to everyone joining also. That was John McWhirter. This was Lockdown TV. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.